Welcome to In The Trenches, where entrepreneurs, artists, writers, designers, inventors, warriors, and leaders share their stories of doing the hard, creative work that impacts all of our lives. Let the journey inspire you to do something worthwhile, build something bold, and create your life's work. And now, your host, Tom Morgus. Welcome back, everyone, to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm really excited to have on today's show Philip Morgan, who's the founder of Philip Morgan Consulting. And if you go to Philip Morgan Consulting, you'll see his bio, um, which I like. And so I'm just going to read directly from it because I think it captures what Philip's all about. Um, he basically is, he helps technical firms and dev shops generate and close more leads, which basically bottom line is, um, you know, again, if we're talking about leads, we're talking about, you know, potential customers, potential clients, which I think is an important topic for anybody who's looking to sell anything, whether you're a consultant, freelancer, or anything like that. And I think Philip has a really cool story because he started as a generalist, which I think a lot of people do. I, I, I think I probably did as well if I look back on it. Um, and, and he did the kind of scary counterintuitive thing and honed in, instead of staying a generalist, honed in on a kind of a specific niche and has dominated it and his business has blown up since then. So we're going to talk about positioning. We're going to talk about that kind of, um, you know, n- niche uh, or, uh, you know, getting getting very specific about what your niche is and who you serve and stuff like that and why that's important. So Philip, thank you so much for being on the call with us today. My pleasure, Tom. Glad to be here. Awesome. So give us a little background on you and how you got into what you're doing today with Philip Morgan Consulting. Well, generally, I was, you know, like, when I kind of got dropped out of college into the world of work, um, <laughs> I I was always interested in technology. So I had a background as a, uh, during the, like, I graduated college right in the middle of the first dot-com boom, which was a really interesting time to enter the world of work because uh, if you were in technology, there was, like, you know, piles of money being thrown at, thrown at you. And all you had to do was, you know, work someplace for a year and then either go some other place or threaten to leave. And you could just like, you know, double your salary. So it was this really interesting time uh, to enter the world of work. I was, uh, was an IT technology trainer. So I was a, what's known as a Microsoft certified trainer which was kind of a big deal back then and nowadays maybe, I don't know, less of a big deal. I, uh, so I taught people how to, how to set up Windows NT servers and run a network and eventually got into the sort of marketing end of that, creating education-based content that was really meant for Microsoft to sell more of their software. And eventually got unemployed in 2008, which was like kind of the perfect bookend to starting out working for the man, uh, you know, in such a kind of gold rush time period to see the end of that in 2008. And that's when I started working for myself. And that's really, I think, when I started to try to learn a bunch of stuff the hard way (laughs) was when I started working for myself. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that transition then. Um, I'm I'm curious what your experience was and kind of what the lessons learned uh, were from that. You know, it's I, the more I talk to people about their experience, the more I feel like what I went through is a pretty common experience. So I, uh, like I said, in 2008, I got laid off. A lot of people did because of what was going on. Like Microsoft, for example, stopped spending any kind of money 
uh, whatsoever on, on non-essential outside vendors. And the company I worked for was one of those. And Microsoft was their primary client. So, you know, it's interesting to reflect on it because I had some sort of uh, it, what what I now understand are very arrogant ways of of uh, sort of thinking about things. And I was like, you know, this running a business can't be that hard. I, I'm just going to work for myself. And I did partnered up with a guy and, you know, started being self-employed and had a lot of uh, sort of strongly held opinions about how to do that. And a lot of those, I think, turned out to be but not very helpful when it comes to running a business. So that was, the, to me, the first interesting thing about that transition. I had no preparation for moving from the world of being an employee to the world of uh, being a freelancer. I had invested zero effort in building up any kind of professional network. Uh, that's a huge mistake that I would hope to never make again, but there you go. I, I did it and and it was painful as a result because, you know, when you become a freelancer, that usually is your first source of, of work is you kind of go out and ping your professional network, right? And usually that shakes loose something that uh, will keep most freelancers going for six months or sometimes six years, you know, it really depends. But I didn't do that. I had no professional network and I really undervalued that and um, got to enjoy the consequences of that uh, dumb mistake. <laughs> and then the other thing that I did was I was like, well, I, you know, I don't know, work should just come to us. So uh, I, I didn't really try to figure out how to market uh, my services or really spend that much time thinking about how to build up a sustainable pipeline of work. And that, um, in my experience, always, you know, that does one of two things. It either, uh, sometime down the road, creates a burning desire to learn that stuff, <laughs> or it sends you back to the world of full-time work if, if you neglect marketing your business, even if you're a freelancer, even if things are going great now. I, I find that, you know, that can change very quickly. Those, uh, what you think is a steady supply of work can dry up especially if you're just reliant on like one client for that. So eh, some of the, those were some of the bigger lessons that I learned. Interesting. So <clears throat> I definitely want to talk about the pipeline and how you then actually set that up. But before I get there, I, I think it's probably worth talking a little bit about building the professional network. So what would you have done differently if you went back in time in the, in the context of building that professional network? Because I feel like for somebody who is employed, I know I didn't think about that either, for sure. Um, although I think I did it inadvertently, which was like a good accident. But, yeah. but like, how do you, if you are employed, how do you, how are, how should you frame it? How should you think about it? And how should you go about building that professional network? You know, there's a couple, um, a, a couple aspects to that that I think we could touch on. One is positioning, and that's a thread I want to come back to because it's it, it's bigger than just you know building a professional network mm -hmm. but the first mistake that i made when it came to a professional network was i um like it, like in real life i'm actually a pretty uh, so so i'm i'm okay at being able to empathize with other people but i did not ever empathize with with how would you know people in my professional network remember me and think about me and understand what I did. 
So I would get, you know, when I was trying to describe what I did in like a networking context or even when it comes to something like, you know, maybe you go to your LinkedIn profile and you're trying to think, how do you write this thing? I was thinking about it entirely from my own perspective. Like, what skills do I have? What am I really good at? What do I enjoy? And I think those things are important, but you you kind of have to translate those into into language that um, that somebody else can understand and easily remember. And I think that's the first place where I made you know big mistakes when it came to networking was just not really, I mean, even though this is, this is the ironic part, uh, what I did was, uh, I was a writer. So I was like a, you know, technical writer. So it's, it's even more ironic that, that I made these kind of mistakes about communication, but, but I did. So that was mistake. Number one was not being empathetic to how somebody else could really, you know, understand me and remember me because you have to be memorable. I think for people to refer work to you, you have to kind of stick out in their mind as, oh, Philip is, you know, the person I need to think of when someone tells me they're not getting enough leads coming in the door mm-hmm. or uh, whatever it is, right? Um, and just being like a content marketer or just being a writer is often not enough to kind of help people remember you. It's just, you know, it doesn't kind of stick in their mind. The other thing I did was I just, I, I didn't know how to uh, how to network. <laughs> I mean, to to put it simply, what I mean by that is I thought networking was like going to events in your local area and, you know, handing out business cards. That was basically what I thought of when it came to networking. And what I later realized is that finding communities where like-minded people congregate either online or in real life and, you know, providing value, being helpful is actually a far more effective way of networking than, than what I was doing at that time. I was kind of showing up like with my, my handout saying, you know, I need, here's what I need rather than showing up with, um, I guess also with my handout saying, here's what I can, what I can offer. Here's how I can be helpful. And that for sure, those two things kept me from having any kind of helpful, meaningful professional network. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm taking some notes here because it's it's funny that I I find this a common a common thread in people that are you know quote unquote struggling to get started. Mm-hmm. Um, they look at the people that who have been successful and they say, well, you know, look at him or look at her. Like they they have all they know all these people and they have all these connections and they have this platform and yada yada yada. Say if it's in the context of online business or something like that, and. Um, and so I, I get that challenge a lot because I, I, I do consulting with uh, bloggers and, and authors and startup founders and stuff like that to help them mm-hmm. do basically like strategic book launches and strategic, uh, you know, digital product launches. And so I get right. a lot of people coming to me asking for help in that. And obviously you can imagine there's, there's quite the gamut of people that are coming for that kind of help. And what's interesting is that, you know, if, if some of the case studies, like we just recently did a launch where we did over $400,000 on Kickstarter uh, for John Lee Dumas's new book. And it was it was an outstanding success, and it wouldn't have happened without his his network and the platform he'd built up, right? Yeah. Um, I think we obviously we did a great job marketing it, but I look at that and I say, and I I, I it's you always see this criticism, and this is why I'm I'm, I'm saying this because people are like, oh well, I, you know he's he, he's you know look at his platform, right? But I think it comes back to this point that every person 
in that case. Like, I don't know if there's a lucky person out there who just instantly, immediately has a network. Maybe there are people like that, but I think most cases, the people who do have some sort of platform, some kind of, you know, an awesome network or something like that, they usually work toward it. And they usually started by giving. Wouldn't you say that's true or am, am I way off? I would. I, I'm sh- I mean, I'm sure you could find some exceptions, you know, someone who's born into a really well-connected sure. family and sure, whatever, sure. but most Barring of the, those. Yeah, exactly. And, and those really are the exceptions. One of the, th- first of all, I want to, I want to jump back a little bit in what you said. Yeah. Um, here's a very specific thing that I would recommend anybody do if, if what you said resonates with them. So it, you know, they think about having a network and they're like, well, you know, I could never be like that person and, you know, Mm -hmm. insert internet celebrity (laughs) there, right? What I want people to do right now is is go find a website called the Internet Archive Wayback Machine and look at the web presence of any person that you admire who is like doing really well online. And And what that website, the Wayback Machine will let you do is go back in time and see previous snapshots of their website. And, you know, it's, it's not a hundred, it's got a hundred percent coverage over the internet, but a lot of times you'll, you'll find previous versions of their website and it is so informative to do, mm-hmm. to go say, oh, wow, uh, their website kind of sucked. Uh, and they didn't seem to have a clear idea of what they were doing. And, uh, as it turns out, they started out doing something way different than what they're doing now. <laughs> yeah. I love doing this because it's just humanizes these people that you might otherwise think are way different than you. And it usually turns out they've just kind of done a lot of work that other people didn't want to do and done it for long enough that it's paid off. Right. Yeah. I'm definitely a big believer in that. So yeah, no, no one is, I mean, no one is born with a professional network you know, like attached to their birth certificate of like, go meet these people. You kind of have to discover it and and make it as you go along. And I guess, that, so I guess, and I think this might be a natural transition point. Where does that, you know, where, where does positioning come into play there? And where does, you know, defining what you do and who you serve, why is that so important? Like, I feel like that's, I feel like that's an underpinning of where people, when you start out just kind of doing whatever, which is important. Like if you haven't started yet, you need to start somewhere. And oftentimes it will be a totally different place where you end up, right? Which is why I never, I'm never of the mindset to like discourage somebody from starting if they're not quite sure where they're at. Um, because I think that's kind of, to some degree for some of us, that's a natural part to start or a point to start. You just start wherever you can and you'll eventually get there. Hopefully, um, obviously much, you can probably get there much faster if you know where you're going. So let's talk a little bit about that positioning and why that's so important. Yeah. And I agree with what you're saying in that very few people follow like some kind of linear straight line from starting point to, you know, the kind of success they're looking for. It's, mm-hmm. it's much more meandering in most cases. So just know that that's totally normal. And, and that can really be intimidating to think, well, you know, I'm going to have to make all these changes and adjustments along the way. And all I can say is, yeah, you are. Yep. <laughs> and that's just part of it. So don't let that be a reason to not start somewhere. And the place most of us start, at least in the world of, of you know, selling services, which is either selling your expertise or selling your time. That's kind of the choice you make at some point yep. is like, what am I selling here? Am I just selling my time and access to skills 
or am I selling expertise, which you can sort of decouple from selling your time. Anyway, it, for those of us selling services, we tend to start out all of us in some kind of generalist uh, situation, which is where what seems like job security to us as a generalist, and this is a mindset I'm talking about, what seems like job security is I can do a lot of different things for almost anybody who needs those things. Like that's kind of the generalist mindset in a nutshell, right? And um, I was there. Uh, most of the people I know, even if they've, you know, kind of moved beyond that or started out there. And, you know, it has to do with the fact that uh, we don't really have any real, a lot of us don't have any real preparation for being in business for ourselves, And we don't know what works when it comes to marketing professional services. So what I found works is a, when you have a narrow focus to your marketing. And that generally means you're extremely specific about who your services are for. And, um, you know, by uh, that, what that means is that you at least imply who very strongly who they are not for, which is super scary. That's scary thing number one about narrowing your focus is all of a sudden you start to say no and you've never done that before as a uh, as a freelancer. You've never said, oh, I don't think we're a good fit here. You know, you've probably, like me, tried to find a way to provide services for any kind of budget, any kind of company that might want to hire you. You just really worked overtime to create that fit, even if there wasn't a good fit. So that's... The first thing is you start to say no, and that is very scary. Um, in terms of the progress from generalist to somebody who's very narrowly focused, that's the sort of the first destination is that you say, okay, I'm going to stop building websites for anybody, and I'm going to start building websites for a specific type of client. And doing that's amazing <laughs> already. Just that simple change changes so many things. You start to get word of mouth referrals where previously the kind of referrals you would get previously is kind of very happenstance and, and by chance. And the, the type of referrals you get when you focus on a, on a particular type of client, um, they just change because people come to you having heard that you focus on, I don't know, let's say you build websites for uh, sports teams. I mean, that's kind of broad, but that, that gives us an example to work with. Sports team A hires you, you build a website, they're happy, and then they start talking to their, uh, you know, their business associates who are other sports teams, and they have heard that you focus on sports teams. When they come to you wanting to talk about building a website, the conversation is completely different because they perceive that you are an expert in building websites for sports teams. Even if you only started doing it six months ago, they, they are very likely perceive that you are an expert who's focused on them. And, you know, I, th I think a good example is thinking about going to a doctor. You know, if, if, you're, if your leg was hurting and, you know, you went to a, a specialist who focuses in that, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable with them knowing that they've focused on just this one problem I think you're going to feel more comfortable versus going to a general practitioner. Same thing maybe with attorneys, right? If you have a 
a particular problem with uh, with the tax that involves the tax code, you want to go to a tax attorney, not just a general attorney who mm-hmm. takes anything and everything. So that is one of the first benefits that people experience when they narrow down is that the referrals they get like have their trust meter not all the way to 100%, but much higher than what you're used to seeing. And that makes it easier to sell your services. It makes it easier to price your services at a attractive rate, attractive to you <laughs> and high on the high end. And, um, and you can get more sort of sophisticated with your positioning. And, and maybe we want to talk about that. Maybe we don't, but that is definitely sort of the first step. Well, I think let's talk about it. Cause I love this. I'm, I'm taking a lot of notes here and, and there's a book that comes to mind that I'm reading right now, but it's not in front of me. It's my backpack, but, uh, it's all about, um, it's like managing the professional firm and it's actually for like, uh, I think it was written by somebody in the, in the legal, um, world talking uh-huh. about positioning for legal services. But I'm like, I think every business owner should read this thing because a lot of what you're hitting on, I'm like, you know, it's, it's exactly that. It's like, how do you differentiate? Um, and it, yeah, in the context of maybe, you know, legal firms or professional firms, but there's so much that can be learned, I think, no matter what business you're in, in yeah. the context of like positioning. So I say, let's talk about how do you, how do you become more sophisticated once you start to, as you know, as people might say, niche down or as you become more, uh, more of a specialist. You know, the next thing that I see happen when, when people are willing to, um, to, to sort of make that sacrifice and start saying no to clients who are outside their focus. And, and by the way, it's, it's, it's not easy to choose a focus. Um, if you come from a generalist background, you kind of get this analysis paralysis that sets in as you're like, well, you know, I've worked with 10 different types of clients and I just don't know. And one of the things I tell people a lot because I, I do coach people with this stuff Um, as I say that this choice is going to feel arbitrary, (laughs) it's going to feel like, well, I'm making a choice and I don't have a lot of good data and the stakes seem kind of high and that's normal. Um, you should just know that the choice you're making is a choice about marketing your business and you can change it later. You know, you can change it easily. You should get some data before you make the choice, but anyway, it's sort of a difficult choice, but after you make that choice and you start to actually narrow down your services, you gain experience way faster with the type of client you've decided to focus on. And that leads you to understand their business model much better. And it leads you to understand the problems that they face based on the type of business they are, which then... (laughs) You know, for most most freelancers are are rather creative, uh, rather you know thoughtful people. So you you kind of start stewing in the the business model and the problems, and you just kind of start to live in the world of that type of client. And what happens next is magic. <laughs> you start to begin to understand what creates value for them, mm. and. As a result, you can start to change your services, adapt your services. They call it moving up the value chain, but basically to provide services that have more value. And when you do that, surprise, surprise, you can charge more. And you can also usually be more picky about what kind of clients you take on. 
And that's essentially what positioning is, is it's a tool that allows you to deliver more value to your clients. So that's where, you know, I can, you know, we can provide a lot of interesting examples. Mm. What you'll often do, uh, like, let me give you an example. Uh, I'm going to use my friend Kurt Elster as an example. So Kurt started out doing uh, brochure websites for local uh, Chicagoland businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and his company is called EtherCycle. If you want to, if you want to do the way back, the Internet Archive way back machine um, experiment with Kurt, that would, that would be very informative, right? So you could go back and see the kind of focus that he had, which was no focus at all, other than we'll build you a really nice brochure website. Uh, and you know, primarily they were working with local businesses, and of course that expanded because they were good at what they did. So he noticed an opportunity in the world of e-commerce and started to focus on that, which is, it's what we were talking about earlier, where you, you choose a type of client that you want to work with. And he said, okay, we're going to work with e-commerce clients. And once he did that, he started noticing that they had problems related to conversion rate and then he built a service that specifically helped them with that problem. If he had chosen to focus on a different type of client, like, I don't know, uh, companies that manufacture forklifts, I don't think he would have found that same problem. He would have found a different problem and built a different kind of service. The point that I'm making is he built a service that was highly, highly customized to the type of clients that he works with. And I mean, Kurt's a really smart guy, but to do that, he needed experience in that type of client's world. So that's, I mean, we could probably hang up the call right now, and I think that would be very beneficial (laughs) to people to know that if you'll pick a type of client, focus on them, you'll very quickly develop experience that gives you ideas for creating higher value services. But if you try to come in from the outside and say, okay, I'm going to create a really high value service for this type of client out of, you know, out of the gates, um, you'll, you'll miss a lot more than, than you'll, than you'll connect with them. You'll, you'll make mistakes a lot more frequently than you'll actually hit a home run. But if you do it the other way around and choose the client focus first, you'll, you'll hit a home run a lot more frequently. So, um, that's, I mean, it, that's just from a very practical perspective, what I've found about positioning and, um, you know, there's some sort of interesting theoretical aspects to it, but I, I I don't think that's going to be nearly as helpful to people as, as just what we've talked about so far. Well, I will, I want to make a quick, uh, kind of side note here, your book, the positioning manual, um, for technical firms, you go into all this, I'm guessing in a lot more depth, correct? That's right. Okay, so I'm going to put that on my reading list here and encourage other people to do the same, and I'll make sure that's in the show notes. Um, and what's interesting is I actually just had Kurt on the show, and nice. he talked about how he, he honed in on Shopify yeah. and focused on that. And I was like, yeah, so it was like a great, a great example for this conversation too, and very interesting um, to see just how powerful that can be, especially when you put it in the context of I love the uh, the concept of moving up the value chain there, and and you move up the value chain by getting just more and more specific with the client, the type of client that you help, and figuring out creative solutions to improve the value that you can give to them. Um, I mean, just really powerful stuff. So yeah, I mean, really, yeah, you could just drop the mic and walk away at this point. Um, 
I like that. So, but but let's uh, let's let's carry on. If you do, you have a few more minutes. Yeah, oh, I sure do. I'm not not trying to uh, to wind things down here. I just just emphasizing that like that's that's really the core of it. But yeah, let's let's keep going. This is fun. Okay. So yeah, and so I want to dig in and and selfishly um, learn as much as I can from you while we have this call. So so now you're moving up the value chain. You know where I feel like people get fixated on certain things that are usually um, are kind of like. I, I'm I'm blanking on the word to describe it, but are kind of like tertiary to the core problem, which right. I think the core problem is not um, becoming that specialist. It's not focusing in on the client that you want to help, and it's not focusing in on the value you want to create. And 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 what they focus on instead of things like um, pricing. So, can you talk a little bit about pricing and, and where pricing fits in this spectrum, and how maybe how to approach pricing, um, especially as you move up that that value chain? Like, you know, I'm, I think the the I think with a lot of freelancers, a lot of people who do service-based work are looking for that that premium price and to, and that premium positioning. So where for does sure. that how where does that lay in this kind of as as we you know become more specialized? How do we work that pricing in? Like what's 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 important to focus on when it comes to pricing? Well, to me, value is is like the bedrock foundation of your ability to charge premium rates. So if you can deliver value that, I mean, again, that, okay, we should probably back up a little bit. Value is really defined by your client. Like, but like it or not, they get to choose how much they value whatever it is. And if you are experiencing downward pressure in your pricing, you're probably doing something that's becoming commoditized. Mm. Now, there is a whole separate kind of problem uh, out there when it comes to freelancers, which is simply not valuing their services enough. And I've I've been there, man. <laughs> Let me tell you, I've mm-hmm. been there where I'm like, well, I just I don't think what I do is worth that much. Yeah, that's a that's a separate problem from what I'm talking about. Gotcha. And 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 that gets into you know the whole sort of area of self worth and and that's really worth talking about. But I'm not much of an expert there. Um, what I can tell you is that over time, things that um, need to be done by someone who lives in the same area as the client can start to be done by other people, which means that. You know, if your client is uh, in a low cost of living area, they're not going to be happy about having to live hire somebody who lives in the Bay Area. And so that sort of that access to a, a market of talent is now global. And there's some clients, some types of services that have to be provided in person. But for those that don't, you are more and more facing a global um, ocean of competition, really. And so you see this with things like, um, I forget what the graphic design market is, 99U, I think, where you can, you know, hire graphic designs. Oh, 99 Designs. 99 Designs, yeah. Um, And, and, you know, Fiverr is a great example of this on the very low end, where more and more of what we would think of as professional services are becoming commoditized because people in very low cost of living areas are becoming skilled at those services and happy to provide them. And so a lot of us think we're insulated from that. Um, I, I hate to pick on iOS developers, but 
they're a pretty good example. Um, I mean, right now that's a hot market. You can make good money as an iOS developer. But I think the the days of uh, of that being a guaranteed great way to make good money are are going to come to an end. And you know, even now you can get really great talent in a place like Croatia for sixty bucks an hour. Yep. And sixty bucks an hour is you know in in some places if you're working forty hours a week that's a good living. Uh, other places, you know, like where I live in the Bay Area, that's that doesn't take you as far as it does in other parts of the country. So we all eventually have to think about the fact that if we provide a service, that service can become commoditized. The cost can be driven down by overseas competition. What do we do then? Mm -hmm. And the answer is you have to have, (laughs) you have to move up the value chain, just like we were talking about. So the, usually the first way people do that is they try to differentiate themselves and say, okay, yes, I am an iOS developer, but I have a special skill in some area. And that just kind of loops us back to what we were talking about before, where sometimes the specialty is you're, you have special knowledge of, of the needs of like, uh, let's say healthcare companies that are dealing with HIPAA compliance. Mm-hmm. That's a good example of how you might differentiate yourself and kind of fend off commodity competitions. You say, yeah, you can get another iOS developer, but can you get one that really understands how to deal with HIPAA compliance? Uh, maybe not. And if not, maybe you should talk to me because there are not that many alternatives to hiring somebody who has that knowledge. So you differentiate by maybe having a specialty, some special area of knowledge or something like that. Um, And then the other thing that happens when you get much further into narrowing down is you start to develop uh, proprietary intellectual property, basically. And that's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. What I mean, mean by that is you have a proprietary way of tackling a difficult problem and that that method delivers better results or at least it delivers predictable, somewhat predictable results. And so that's why you see a lot of, you know, higher end professional services firm sort of touting their, their proprietary methodology. Because when that works, it really, it, it is, you know, it sort of lowers the risk. And that's the other thing that um, narrow positioning and and truly becoming an expert helps you do. It helps you lower the risk for clients. And that is a huge part of what they're looking for when they're spending money on on outside services, is they're looking for somebody who can lower risk for them. Yep. These are all, you know, these are all sort of things that happen. They, they all start with that one domino of deciding to, to narrow down and start saying no. And I think they're great things because, wow, do they... Um, so they turn freelancing from something you do on the side or between jobs. They can turn it from that into something you can actually make a career out of. In a very healthy one. Which mm, is, I think so. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's definitely the case. Uh, I love this. I think this is so powerful. You could write a book about it, which you have. So I did. I'll, I I'll be reading that. <laughs> um, I wish I had read it before this conversation, but then that probably would have answered a lot of my questions already. So I'm kind of glad I didn't. Nice. Um, so let so tell us a little bit about uh, your platform right now. I'm really curious about this, and then this will uh, yeah. So tell me a little bit about like philipmorganconsulting.com. Um, where do you get your clients? Well, I do a couple things. Um, that that also that question of like where do you get your clients was something that haunted me, and um, 
and made me feel like a failure <laughs> and all kinds of things until I started to put together some ways to deal with that. So uh, I'm an introvert. I, I love being an introvert, but I, but I don't get out a lot. So I don't like relish the idea of, oh, let's go to this networking event and be around a bunch of people I've never met before. Like that's not a lot of fun for me. So I really focused on online channels for acquiring clients. And uh, so that's the first thing you should know about how I get clients is I usually uh, get them via the internet. And the second thing that I think would be interesting for people to know is that I was kind of sold on the idea of content marketing from the get-go. And I mean, content marketing currently as of the time of this recording is still considered like awesome and hot and, you know, you should be doing content marketing. So I experimented a lot, experimented a lot with content marketing as a way to attract the kind of clients I wanted. And what I found was it did not work very well <laughs> on its own. Um, it worked fine when it was combined with something else, but on its own, it was not a very effective way to just fill up my pipeline with clients who were just dying to work with me. And here's what I found when I really got into it was that no matter how good the content was, if if I depended on Google or other search engines to bring, uh, you know, prospective clients to my site where they could, you know, quote unquote, consume my content and, you know, maybe fill out a contact form or, or get on an email list, that's when the results were not very good. And it did not seem to matter how good the content was. But when I went out in the world um, and w tried to teach people something, so I would try to get in front of an existing audience, teach them something, and then send them back to my content and try to line up the type of teaching I was doing with the type of content, that's when my results got dramatically better. So basically, I stopped depending on Google to bring me uh, the type of people that I, I hoped would look at my my content, and I just started getting out there and and you know kind of connecting with existing audiences and trying to send them to my content after teaching them something that hopefully they'll be interested in. I mean, that's exactly what I'm doing now. Is uh, is, a, is it's a good example of that anyway. So. Um, when you kind of string together all those things, good content marketing with a way to send tra interested traffic to that content marketing and then follow up through email, I found that that's a lot more effective in helping me get clients, um, you know, without having to leave the house, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, that's awesome. And and when you talk, so that one piece, um, assuming somebody can, you know, has a good you know, I, I, content marketing strategy, or they, they know why they're producing what content, and and assuming all that's squared away and and, and makes sense and works. How? Tell me a little bit about that piece about how you get people to come to it. So how how do you get that traffic besides obviously through Google through SEO, which you basically said, yeah, I'm not don't really focus on, which I I don't either. But mm -hmm. I'm curious, like what what do you do then to spread the word about great pieces of content that are relevant for your audience or relevant for your target audience? There's a couple things that, that seem to work better. And I, I think some of these things are dependent on my personality and, and would be dependent on the personality of whoever's doing it. So, you know, 
I guess keep in mind that I have a background in training and education, which I got through that that earlier experience in my career. So I really love uh, guesting on podcasts. I have a podcast of my own, so that's another sort of venue where I can use my voice and you know my sort of ideas about positioning and so forth, hopefully to provide value to an existing audience. And that's the interesting thing. Anyone who has built up an audience uh, now has an audience, which is great, but they have a new problem, which is they need uh, interesting content to feed that audience, to keep them engaged. And so that creates kind of a the potential of a win-win. So someone who's got a podcast, someone who hosts a, a business meetup group of some sort, someone who, uh, you know, puts on a, a conference those are all people who need good content that is relevant to their audience, which creates an opportunity for someone like me and maybe hopefully someone like a lot of your listeners to get out there and teach. There's very little that builds trust faster than doing a good job of teaching. And trust, in my experience, is the, is the thing you're trying to optimize for in any kind of marketing funnel that sells services that sells professional services you've got to build trust as quickly and effectively as possible as early on in that funnel as you can so teaching is a great way to do that um you know speaking in front of conferences another good one is uh partnering with someone who has an audience and doing webinars uh again that's you know kind of a teaching-based activity sorry i hesitated there for a moment because i realized webinars are also used to sell stuff a lot of times. And that's the thing. When you do some kind of teaching activity, like guesting on a podcast or, um, you know, co-hosting a webinar or speaking to some local business group, if at the end you are pitching some paid product, the needle is going to scratch off the record and people are going to be like, what? <laughs> Who is this person to, you know, bait bait us with uh, information and then try to sell to us. So what I think needs to happen at the end of that, you know, appearing on a podcast or guesting on a podcast or whatever, uh, is you need to send them to something else that just takes the next step and delivers more information for free. Um, selling professional services is different than selling like an information product. Uh, with an information product, you can use things like curiosity to kind of get people interested in buying. But you don't want there to be any questions as to your ability and the depth of your expertise when you're selling professional services. So you need to demonstrate a lot of that stuff full free, uh, pretty pretty upfront with with prospects. And so that's why I recommend teaching and then sending them to something else that's free that kind of helps them solve a problem or, or otherwise demonstrates your expertise. And then you can start selling your services after that. And that, that I do over email, but there's other ways to do that as well. Yeah. And I, I love obviously email and automation and everything you have going on. I think it's great. Um, and this is, I'm going to say it's, it's probably not a quick question, but I am curious because you brought up the the info product thing, I'm curious. Like, is it is it possible to run a professional services firm and sell an info product, or are I think, those two? I think so. Okay. 
I'm sorry I interrupted. No, yeah, <laughs> I was just ahead. so eager to say, heck yeah, it is. Uh, it's definitely possible to. Um, I mean, that's another sort of interesting aspect of of doing the kind of marketing that I, I like to see professional services firms do is I, I think it, well, I should, I'm going to sort of uh, qualify this by saying if you're selling to enterprise companies, then your starting price point may, can be quite high. But even so, I think it's valuable to have a starting price point for access to you that's, um, you know, two, two or three figures rather than, you know, so I'm talking mm -hmm. something that's between more than $0 because if you give something away for $0, you haven't sold it really. Um, so, you know, greater than $0, less than $999. Like having an offering that's in that price range can be very valuable because it gets more people used to spending money with you, which makes it easier for them to later spend larger amounts of money with you. So info products are great for that. And it doesn't have to be, you know, stuff just, it doesn't just have to be like an ebook, although that's one common example. You can sell access to information in all kinds of ways. So, you know, uh, I've recorded this Let's, you know, an example would be you've recorded some screencasts that are useful to your, your ideal client and you sell access to those. You sell like a library of screencasts or, um, you know, that's just scratching the surface. I just say that to point out that it doesn't have to be a, like a written piece of, you know, text content. So I think that's absolutely valuable for a professional services firm to do. Uh, for some, of course, it could be a distraction. But I think what it says to clients is that they have so much expertise that they ha actually have some left over after they're done working with clients that they can package up and put into, you know, a format that, that creates value for us. It's also a good way for clients to sort of test the waters. So, yeah, uh, and not that you have to do it, but I absolutely think it's a great, great thing to do. Love it. Well, Philip, I really appreciate all the time you've given us today. Um, where can people reach out to you and learn more about you and get your your books and your other products and uh, potentially work with you? Thanks, Tom. It's uh, I just want to say this has been a lot of fun. And um, so here's what people should do is if this, you know, positioning stuff is interesting at all, I would recommend you go to positioningcrashcourse.com. And that's a free email course. It'll give you more details on positioning. It's, you know, delivered over the course of a week to your inbox. And I think that's a really good starting point. What will then happen is you'll be on my list and you'll start getting emails from me uh, rather frequently, which uh, hopefully will provide more value. And from there, just hit reply, start a conversation. Um, you'll see links to my website once you're there. Uh, that really is the best way because that, that sort of provides the most value up front. So that's what I'd recommend folks do. Perfect. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. Well, Philip, thank you so much. That was enlightening conversation. So there's some great stuff in there I didn't even mention, but one of the, things, the quotes I got from you was optimized for trust, which mm -hmm. wasn't even, you know, the topic of the, the conversation at all. But I thought that was just such a great line. But uh, seriously, you. drop some, some uh, knowledge bombs on us. And I really appreciate the wisdom. So thank you so much for being on In the Trenches. My pleasure, Tom. And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you'd like to check out the show notes, just head over to tommorcus.com slash podcast, where you'll find the latest broadcast. And if you enjoyed today's broadcast, 
please do me a favor and leave a rating and review on iTunes. That's the fastest, simplest, easiest way to support my creative work, and it would really mean a lot to me. As always, this is Tom Morcus, and if you're listening to this, you are the resistance. <laughs>